Welcome to Life Extension. Life Extension is my series where I interview the scientists and pioneers of longevity. We're investigating the new frontiers of longevity for people and planet. Dr. Barzilai is one of the world's leading researchers of exceptional longevity, the kind of longevity that some people call mutant. It's folks who have genetic variations that protect them from aging. So we'll hear all about that. And I'm really interested to share with you what he told me about biomarkers. How do you know if you've got that kind of longevity? What is biological age really if it's different from calendar age? We get into it, so stay tuned. Well, it's my pleasure to have you on our longevity series, Dr. Barzilai. If it's okay, I'll call you Nir. Yes, nice um, doing it with you. Looking forward to that. I'm excited to learn. I mean, maybe the claim to fame for us to get started here on learning about your work is this, this study of centenarians. As a leading researcher in the field of aging or anti-aging, which is perhaps a term that folks in the longevity field have had to deal with that comes from the non-scientific literature, Maybe the, the work that you're most known for is this work that you did with people that lived a very long time. Am I right? Is that something to get started with? I'm curious to learn about all these centenarians. Yes, but, but just like you, I'm not starting with that. I'm starting with the term anti-aging. And really what we call ourselves is geroscientists. The science is geroscience. It's the science about aging. And we are geroscientists. And why am I picking on you for that? Because anti-aging includes lots of other things, okay? Anti-aging is where some charlatans work, okay? Because they, they'll tell you they have something for you to live forever. And if you die, nobody sues them, okay? So I just wanted to make this Point, although a lot of us have surrendered to the fact that we cannot live anti-aging anymore, but at least I'm trying to say who we are. And yes, the centenarian study have started because when I went into the field, it was clear from work on lower animal models, like a worm, like the worm nematodes, that you can change one gene in a whole organism, and this will increase their lifespan by several folds. In other words, there is a genetic control of longevity. And if there's a, a genetic control for longevity, maybe we can depict it in 100 years old who are relatively healthy and live longer and try to see what are the longevity genes that we human have in order to develop drugs so that if you're not going to be a centenarian, you can actually be treated and maybe we can imitate a lot of it. Now, Nir, let me slow you down for a moment, uh, the way we seek perhaps to slow down our, our aging over life. The first touch point that I think many of our listeners would be familiar with is we studied some small animals, worms, flies. We did a knockout, we changed a gene, something, and suddenly they live twice as long. You mentioned worms. I think some of us have also heard the work on other small animals, maybe even mice. And I mean, when you hear about doubling or tripling lifespan, and then you think about human life, I mean, the mind leaps to living 200 or 300 years. But there's got to be some discontinuity between, hey, I found an interesting gene that had a big impact on flies and what that could possibly translate to on humans. Help us perhaps to think about that. I totally agree with that. I, I would even say it worse. You know, so nematodes, instead of living 20 days, they live 60 days. Well, 
is 60 days enough for us? <laughs> you know, but this is how we should look at it. Look, human life expectancy throughout human evolution, okay, maybe 100,000 years, was somewhere between 19 and 35, okay? There were some old people all the time, but very rare. And what happened about 150 years ago, so think of it on the time scale of evolution, 100,000 years and then the last 150 years, really rapidly, our lifespan has increased to an average of 78 now. Okay, so it tripled pretty much in a very short time. And why did it triple? Because we kind of figure out agriculture, we clean the water, we build sewers, lots of prevention. We have immunization, right? And other things happen like surgery and antibiotics, right? Other things have happened. And what happened is that now 150 years later, when we get to the age of 78, we are struck by diseases that were not common at all, almost non-existent in human evolution. Cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer, cardiovascular disease, and many more. This deal that we made got stuck. And the question for us is how do we create a better history? How we can get back on the curve? And how fast or what's the timeline for getting to 200 years. So 500 years ago, average age 25, 100 years ago, average age 45, today, average age 78, 80. That's your tripling over the last, let's say, 500 years after, well, after agriculture, I guess, right? But it's a very recent development. But these nematodes, are they dying of cancer after 30 days? Are the flies dying of uh, diseases of old age? I mean, how translational is this very first phenomenon? So I'll tell you how I look at it from human perspective. It's important because it's an FDA question. For us, aging is what drives diseases. And so if we stop aging, we don't stop one disease. We stop several diseases that are associated with aging. For me, which diseases you have is really irrelevant in a scheme. I mean, if your mother is diabetic and you're obese, you'll get diabetes. But it's all really driven by the biology of aging. And if you stop the biology of aging, you stop those diseases itself. So I'm trying to have a look at if, uh, of that is agnostic. And the reason I think I'm writing this approach is not in nematodes. By the way, there are gene in nematodes that are relevant to our centenarian studies. In fact, the first longevity gene that was found in the nematode that has to do with insulin and growth hormone actions are the most common genotypes in our centenarian. So some of that is very relevant. And the first longevity gene that we found was an enzyme, a protein that's called CTP, that does not exist in those models and not in mice either. <laughs> okay, so they're human specific. So this is the variability we have here. But what we've done recently is we have 750 centenarians and we have their whole exome sequencing and we have thousands of people who are not centenarians and will not probably be centenarians. And we ask what's the differences between those two genomes. Yeah, I guess is the centenarians are the winners of a genetic lottery. 
and you want to find out what's different. Is that the idea? Uh, exactly, exactly. We want to find what's different in the genome of centenarians and regular people. Exactly right. And what we found out is that the genes that were uh, associated with longevity in animals are exactly the same genes that showed up in centenarians. So let me back up for a second and say, people are asking, what is the relationship between nematode or yeast or mice or uh, rat or baboon aging to human aging? Well, let's look at mammalians, okay, because they are more relevant. And when we look at what happens in mammalian, we see that their whole aging is very similar to ours. It's the skin, it's the hair, it's the skeleton, it's diseases, maybe the different diseases, but it's all the same. And if you can delay it in those rodents, if you can delay those diseases, if you can target aging, you delay those diseases. So well, let me test this for a second, just to see if I understand. So some of the superficial stuff, hair and skin, the big families around morbidity, you know, it's like the heart, it's maybe neurodegenerative stuff after that, it's cancers, like these are the things that happen when you get like a, another large primate to start getting old or even mice. Right. So it's all the, I mean, the diseases are not, the cancers are different kind of cancer, but they're all age related, right? Cardiovascular disease is not a big thing in animals. They don't live long enough to get their coronary clogged, but the aging processes at large are very similar. And this is a big thing. And I would tell you the major problems, the major mistake that we've done as a scientific community when it comes to age-related diseases is in the labs, we used young animals to study those age-related diseases. When in fact, the biology is very different. And that's why you think that you discovered something in young that is so amazing and it's worth treatment but when you started to get to humans and the humans are elderly and they have a different biology, you got stuck. So it's very important to realize that our models of aging are much more relevant than ever and are relevant to the phenotype of aging itself. Let me explore then with you this. I mean, we started with the word aging. And I mean, it's, it is an important word. And it's, I guess, been misused as long as it wasn't a medicalized term. Aging, I don't think, until more recently was a term that in medicine we had even a concept, right? And uh, if you were to say accelerating aging, anti-aging, la, 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 you're not in the world of medicine because aging is not a concept in medical school, I guess. Right. But in your language, it's a foundational concept. It's actually more foundational than diabetes or gaining weight or losing bone density. Actually, it's the driver of a family of conditions that are the symptoms. So then what is aging? What is the biomarker? What is the thing that, how do you know it's happening apart from those symptoms? Is there a biological age that's different from a calendar age? I mean, how, where do we go find this concept? Those are terrific questions. And there were many of, many of those. So let me pick one. And maybe I'll get to the biomarker one later. But, you know, just to put it lightly, when I was asked it, with lay people, define aging. I would say, you know, it's the story of the old couple. They live in the middle, in the Midwest, in a nice house. And the wife comes to the husband and says, honey, can we go upstairs and make love? And the husband says, sweetie, I cannot do both. 
Okay, that's the definition of aging. That's the functional definition of aging. For me, <laughs> uh, based on the centenarian study, I would say that aging is the point where we move from growth to breakdown. Okay, in evolution, we want to have our offspring. That's the ma major step. And we have the offspring in evolution, younger, even older now. But, you know, by the age of 40, we usually, most of us have our offspring. And after we're having the offspring, we're starting to break down for variety of biological phenomenon that we can talk about. And now we have to shift the energy from growth to managing the breakdown. You don't want to spend energy on something that is too useful because it takes a lot of energy and you have other problems. This is in fact something that we recently uh, proven very nicely apropos growth using a big, big data set. And it's called, by the way, antagonistic pleiotrophy. Some things, some things that are good for you when you're young can turn against you when you're old. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like you need a lot of cholesterol to develop even your gonads, but your brain and cells and, you know, and get there. Well, if you have high cholesterol when you're old, you're going to get into a lot of problems. So there's antagonistic plotrophine, all of that. And it's coincidental because, you know, aging is not part of evolution, right? I mean, our aging is 150 years old. We have never been trained to protect that. And it's also happening after reproduction. So how, how could it ever happen? It's just a consequence. Some of the things were good. Some of the things were bad. Yeah. Okay. So at a species level, I guess, is the general gist of the argument. And, you know, I don't know, maybe some evolutionary biologists would debate how well validated lifespan is at, as like a population level selector. But the general idea, I suppose, is that the right rate of reproduction, once you reproduce, have to shift the population's energy to the younger generation. So there's all these built-in timers that are blowing up your older generation. This is the antagonistic stuff. Maybe some is accidental. Maybe some is selected for at the population level for us over many, you know, millions of yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't my explanation. And I, I don't believe in the way you based ah. it. I don't think we have programmed, programmed death. I don't so think that we were selected to die after we, we reproduce. I think everything is coincidental and it couldn't have been part of evolution because it happened after we had reproduction. If our parents die the next day after we were born or they live to be 100, it's too late for the baby. He got the genes, right? I see. Yeah. Maybe my listening was a stronger version of the argument. Your argument is once you reproduce, evolution isn't working as hard to solve those late in life diseases because they never used to happen anyway. These are all the accidents we haven't solved yet. So here we are, humanity working with science, confronting something that evolution didn't spend any time on. Well, perhaps. actually, let me give you a contrary example that is really interesting. Centenarians, our centenarians and other long-lived families have exchanged reproduction with longevity, it seems. You can actually do it in nature. You can do it with nematode. You can stop their reproduction. They live longer. <laughs> okay. So there is exchange like that. If this happens, if people who live longer have less kids, which happens to be right in my cohort. Okay. That means that we're losing longevity gene because if in every generation there are less people from those who are longevity. Okay. We have less and less longevity genes. 
And it makes you think when the Old Testament has ages like Moses was 120 and Abram was 175 and Methuselah was 969, you wonder, okay, maybe they all were built better, but with reproduction, we lost, <laughs> we lost those longevity genes. So very interesting. Yeah. But so now coming back, so aging, you said it's when you get over that hill from growth to, I guess, senescence or where you're starting to come apart a little bit. That's your definition. Now, conceptually, I suppose I, I'm with you there, but I don't know if that's a sharp enough scientific idea that from there you can now derive, you know, propensity to have diabetes or whatever. It's really just the name for everything that springs springs a leak. Right. And I didn't mean to, I didn't put this as a definition. I really put it as how do I see it? Because the definition is complex because for the definition, you need the biology of aging. And to need the biology of aging, you need a lot of biomarkers, okay? With heart, we were lucky. We had cholesterol. We said, you have high cholesterol, we'll take it on cholesterol. Just one thing and one treatment to get this thing down. And in aging, it's not like that. But furthermore, it's complicated, but what you raised before, and that's what is the biological age and what is the chronological age? And we know, and it gets worse with age, we know that we look at our parents and their friends, and we see some look much younger than their age and some older than their age. And it has actually a value and it makes it also difficult. If you're asking me, okay, what's the exact age where the growth hormone and the breakdown are starting to exchange? I don't know. I don't think I got there yet, but you know, but some people at their 40, they start breaking down. And those are things that will, we are actually, it's a big question for us. And I, I'm spending a lot of my energy in getting big data in order to get the best biomarkers that we have in aging. So to tell you what's your biological and chronological age, it are related really to how many years you have to live. And not only that, those biomarkers like the cholesterol, if we treat you for aging, would they change and predict our success? Okay, so those are big challenges that we have now that are much more complex than blood pressure or cholesterol or any of those very unidimensional. So give us, a taste, give us a taste of the map that you are starting to form or some of the candidates people are considering. I've been hearing about this biological age. There's a cottage industry of folks that want to take a few milliliters of your blood and send you back something that's genetic or epigenetic or other um, enzymes or other things from your biome. Maybe there's your glycans is another thing. There's many different expressions that folks are all saying, this is the one, but help us understand this menu. There are many things and there are many things who are commercial. And I will tell you just one thing, their predictive value is not so clear. And of course, when it's commercial, you're very likely, if you're interested, which means you're also doing something for your aging, you're very likely to get the answer that you're a few years younger than your cohort. And I'm not saying you're lying, but you can get a control group of poor obese people and you'll always be better than them. So there's a lot of science. There's lots of marketing <laughs> and the answer is we don't know, but we're looking at everything. So I'll give you an example from my research of what I think is going to be really important. We took thousand people from my studies that are between the ages of 65 and 95, thousand people, 65 to 95. And we measured in each one of them 5,000 proteins. 
Okay, 5,000 proteins. Okay, 1,000 times 5,000. And we ask, what changes, right, between 65 and 95? And we got lots of interesting things and two things to tell you from very big data and its analysis. One is that some of the things that are going up are actually protective proteins. They're there to protect you against the breakdown. We know that if we express those proteins in animals in a genetic way, they would live healthier and longer. If you're thinking, let's see what's high and get them down, no, that's not how it's going to work. Some of them we have to go up even farther. The second thing, and the most striking thing for me, a lot of those proteins, like 10 sub-pathways, are breakdown, okay? They're breakdown of your blood cells, they're breakdown of your collagen, of your intracellular matrix. And at first I thought, how can that help? But you know, the truth is no matter how we are targeting aging, we have to stop the breakdown. So I think those are going to be very good biomarkers. But there are others. The point is that we have to do all of them around a control study of an accepted gerotherapeutics to get an approval for them to be used as gero as uh, biomarkers commercially. So your view is we're still pretty early in this field. So folks are commercializing a bit ahead of the consensus. Right. We did the work where we took current proteins that are being measured, 238 proteins, and we asked what are the evidence that they're good biomarkers. And six came out. Of those six, four are in my study confirmed. So, you know, we can measure and it probably is important, but we don't have it as, you know, like we have hemoglobin A1C for diabetes. Okay. It means something. We don't have this measure. By the way, hemoglobin A1C is one of the measure that changes if we target uh, longevity. I want to pause for a minute here and talk to you about Life Extension Ventures. It's the reason I'm doing this series for In The Know. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund dedicated to working towards the longevity of people and planet. The future of humanity depends on our planet surviving. And its potential can really only be unlocked if we focus on some of the technologies, some of the breakthrough science that's making it possible for us to live longer and better lives. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund focused on supporting visionary founders that are working towards longevity of people and planet. It's the future of humanity that they're working on, and we want to back them. I spent a lot of time as a science person, as an academic, as a student, and then I spent even more time becoming a company builder and venture investor. And with Life Extension Ventures, I'm bringing both of those things together with my partner, Yaki Berenger. It's got a similar story. And we're out there finding folks who want to build companies that can really make a difference for human life. We'll need this planet if we want to survive, and we'll need to focus on these breakthrough technologies if we really want to unlock human potential. So here we are doing it and sharing with you in this episode is uh, some of the breakthrough science that we've been learning about and trying to back. Well, on the hunt then for some advice, if it's not yet the moment to, to measure, but we're getting close, it sounds like you have a handful that you think are, are good candidates. I think one of the other things that you're, you're well known for is your work on metformin. 
And people are talking about metformin so much more lately than they ever have, even though the drug's been there for 50 years or 70 years or something like that. Some folks might even casually think, well, metformin is cheap and safe, and why don't I even take it? I should. Is it an obvious panacea? That Are we too early? Is it too dangerous? Is it foolish? Or is it overlooked? Help us think about what drugs or supplements and in particular, metformin. My major research is not about metformin. So it's not it's not really my work about metformin. It's my work as a volunteer for the American Federation of Aging Research, where I'm the senior scientist there. We are working with the FDA to have the biology of aging as an indication. If we have something that targets aging, what are the indications that the FDA would look and approve? Okay, in order to pave the road for our efforts. And metformin, we chose as a tool because it had major advantages. Okay, and I'll count some of them. In my mind, there are 10 advantages. I don't know that I can tell you all 10 now in one breath. (laughs) But the first is that when you give metformin to animals, they live healthier and longer. And they change the biology of aging. The second is metformin needs a repurpose. It's a drug that is approved by the FDA. In fact, when we met the FDA, we never talked about metformin, okay? Because you go to the FDA, you find everything you you have to to do about metformin. So it's a drug that's repurposed. In fact, we came as scientists. There's no pharmacy behind us. There's no money to be made. We're scientists that want to get the science (laughs) done. Third thing, There's a lot of preliminary data of clinical studies and association studies. In fact, I would say that metformin has been effective on many diseases already that we know of. We are just clumping it together, okay? We're just clumping it together. We're saying we're going to take elderly people. We don't care what disease they have or what disease they get. But we're going to show you that in a five-year study, we're going to prevent or delay those diseases. This is what we're going to show. So it's a perfect tool. It's safe. It's the safest drug in the market. It's also the cheapest drug in the market. So it's generic. So if people say, oh, longevity is for the rich. No. In fact, if you start with metformin, it's for the poorest. (laughs) It's no price. 400 pills for $20, you know, depending where you get them. Very cheap. With all those and others, and when I say others, there are things like it's a template for pharmaceuticals who are going to develop maybe better drug or combination of drug to use that. It's a whole study design that's very unique. So there's a lot of other advantages of doing the TAME study. And again, I believe that metformin is gerotherapeutics. It's proven in, in, in humans it's safe, but it's the tool for us to get an FDA approval for something like aging. How long are we waiting for the results of this study? It sounds like you're trying to just do a gold standard U.S. piece of work on this. One of the frustrating thing about this study that it was delayed many times, it's still delayed. I mean, recently by COVID, it's still delayed. There were funding issues. There was a billionaire that wanted to fund it and he's not a billionaire anymore. You know, there are things that happen. And in fact, in this way, we're now uh, trying to get the last piece of money. One of the problems, we cannot sign a patient without, the IRB will not approve unless we know that we can end the study. It's not ethical. Yeah, it's not ethical to do so. One of the problems with aging research is you have to wait for the aging to happen as well, isn't it? So these are one of the, that's always a long-term. 
And also outside the U.S., there aren't other people that have done some work that perhaps doesn't meet our standard locally with metformin. I would have thought, you know, maybe the Chinese or the Russians had experimented a bit more than we have. Not that we know. There is a lot of studies on metformin, many of them associations. Some of them are biological. It seems that all of them are good, but, you know, I'm not kidding myself. Maybe negative studies or bad studies are not published, but there are also lots of doubling, you know, eyesight and metformin. Now, there are three studies on that, so you kind of get some validations on what it is, but it seems that metformin is doing only good. If metformin was killing people, I think we would have known it by after billions and billions of years of use. What else are people curious and interested in if the flagship will be something like metformin because the data on it is so broad and so deep? What else will come behind that? I mean, you, know, you hear over this last 20 years, you know, there's resveratrol and the polyphenols and there's uh, DNA repair and NAD and many things are floating around and they may still be well short of having true validation. But I wonder, you know, what do you think is not getting enough attention that you think is really interesting that more work needs to be done or that you're hearing some buzz about or maybe it deserves the buzz? I'm curious what's on your radar because you must be one of the most skeptical observers. You know, when you talk to people in industry, they're always getting carried away. So I'm curious. I'm actually an optimist. What holds me compare, look, I'm kind of a rare species among geroscientists because I'm an MD also. You know, most people are PhDs. So in first year of medical school, they teach me do no harm. So you become a conservative. We all are. And then the second day is there's no always, no never in medicine. And you even with the best drugs, you can kill somebody from time to time. So I'm that, but I'm very optimist about aging. And after metformin, I just published a paper not long ago about if we could do those studies with metformin, it's called TAME. If we TAME-like studies, there are 12 other drugs that I would use that are to repurpose. Okay, so you don't start with animals and with safety. Okay, you start straight in humans. So if there is enough money, we can just populate the pipeline with and approve many drugs. But, you know, what we geroscientists agree on is they are what we call hallmarks of aging. In order to be a hallmark of aging, you have to show that something changed with aging and when you fix it, your animal lives healthier and longer. Okay, that's how you accept the hallmarks of aging. And a growing industry, a growing biotech industry, what motivates them is... Picking a hallmark. Oh, another very important thing of the hallmark. If you fix one, you affect the others. <laughs> That's another thing. You don't have to treat everything together in order to get an effect. So the industry is really looking at the hallmarks as a target. And so let me give you an example. One of the hallmarks of, of aging is a decline in protostasis. I won't tell you what's protostasis, but part of it is autophagy. And I'll tell you what's autophagy. Autophagy is the garbage disposal of our cells. Actually, it's a green energy garbage disposal because it takes the component of the garbage, the proteins that are not folded well and clouding the cells. Think of Alzheimer and Parkinson when you have in your neural, lots of stuff accumulated. It could all be circled by this process that's called autophagy. And I think drugs that will affect autophagy, we know already that they extend health span and lifespan of animals and prevent Alzheimer and Parkinson, and they're in development. So I think they'll be really important. So that's one example. Then there is example from what we call left field. 
I mean, I had no idea where it's coming from. And one of them is hyperbaric oxygen. When I heard about it first, I said, you know, the opposite. We are spending our time in taking the antioxidants and you're putting us for two months into a hyperbaric chamber and give us treatment. It should be devastating, but it's not. And it has a biology. And in fact, we just purchased here a small hyperbaric oxygen to understand better the biology of aging. But it's really not about the oxidative damage as much as getting oxygen. Our blood uh, vessels are declining with aging. So we have tissues who don't get enough oxygen. So if you give them treatment for a while with oxygen, they revive tissues and you can measure it clinically. It's quite impressive. All of a sudden, we have something that sounded awful and all of a sudden, and by the way, I'm telling you just part of the biology. There's actually even more interesting biology on that that I believe should be tested in clinical trial. I'm giving you two examples. Lots is happening. Lots is happening. I'm so optimistic about the future and about the fact that we'll start doing larger steps. It's definitely an exciting moment. I mean, I, I took a look at the... Um the tables that the U.S. Census publishes on life expectancy on someone born today. And I wonder how accurate you think the number is. It's 80-something, someone born today. And, of course, that's based on some statistics about what's been happening looking backwards. That's probably the way they do these actuarial tables. I thought, well, surely it's impossible that someone born today will live to 82 or whatever the number was on that table, given the, the ferment and all the exciting themes that you're talking Surely my child born today will have access to technologies. Even if your study is delayed, it's 10 years, it's 20 years. And someone born today, I mean, can it be, what would be your best guess if you had to put a finger in the air? It's answering really the way you asked me now. Yogi Berra said, right, it's hard to make prediction in particular about the future, right? So, <laughs> and by the way, most of the predictions that I read, people who are living today will live to 100 years old, okay? So I don't necessarily believe both of that. I'll tell you what people don't take into account. For example, the fact that our maximum lifespan as a human species today is 115 years. It's true, somebody lived to 122, but statistically, it's 115 years. And we die before the age of 80, so there's 35 years that we can realize. But the fact that there's a roof means that we cannot just go like that and break the roof. There is a roof, so the curves will get flatter unless we start fussing around with aging, right, with our potential itself, which is not impossible, by the way. I think there... To just say, oh, we know where we came from and we know where we're going is really not right, except, and I would say this way, look, the order of what happened, you know, water and sores and immunization, it looks like very linear slope, okay? Also because they didn't happen together in all parts of the world. It took time for them to go, but it took years and not decades to go. And so if we will be successful, I bet the curve will stay straight. But for that, you have to invest in geroscience to make sure that we're going to make this success. Very interesting. A last question for you. And this one departs a little bit from the core of your field, because we're talking about innovations that you guys are discovering that are making a big difference on how long we live. I wonder about the adjacent innovations that are accelerating your work. And so a way to ask this question is when I finished my PhD, 
I guess it was 20 years ago, something like that. I only used one piece of software, Microsoft Word. That was it. Arguably, I had a web browser, so maybe just two things. At this moment, software must have changed the way you work. I'm curious for some exciting trends, new approaches, things that even you don't understand yet that you think are transforming the way your work happens and accelerating even the way you measure how quickly you will advance. Yeah, no, I think it's all in uh, the information technology and I would say AI because um, we get a lot of points, the omics part, right? We get a lot of points. We have to make sense out of them. And then we have to use this information in order to develop drug <laughs> that will target aging. The work today is very different than my work. I would say that the challenge is that people who are doing AI and computational work, you don't have to ask me any question. I'll give you interesting things. I think this is where we're going wrong now. There's a lot of people who are giving me answer, you know, there's a medical, I'll give example just, there's a 20 years medical record of 3 million people. Okay, they're electronic medical record. And they found that obesity caused diabetes. Well, I don't need this, okay? I knew that I don't need this. <laughs> it, it might have been a question as a control. Tell me what happened to obesity. If you didn't find it caused diabetes, I don't trust anything you're doing, okay? There's that part. A lot of the answers that we're getting are either wrong or they don't, they totally don't understand it. I'll give you another example. Assortative mating. A assortative mating is when obese person marries an obese people and person and a smoker is marrying a smoker. Okay. So you pair somehow poor marry, marry to poor and rich marry to rich, you know, so assortative mating, but they, they came with a solution that longevity is all about assortative mating. And it's really measuring measuring the environment, okay? And we, we kind of knew that. We don't need geneticists to tell us that. My point is, I spend a lot of time working with those computational people, and it's difficult, okay? It's difficult. And to tell them what makes sense and not makes sense, and to ask questions, I should be the one who's asking questions, okay? They shouldn't be the one who's asking questions. I can ask questions. They can tell me what data. They can say, how can I use this data? But they cannot answer questions because if they don't understand what to control for and what they're saying, it's nothing for me. It's a work that's wasted. So for the moment, it's still the, the spirit in the animal that's driving the research forward in your lab. We are making progress. And I work with some people who are not only converted, but I, I have an Alzheimer grant and the computational guy is actually going to all the clinical meetings. I mean, he knows more now about Alzheimer than I do. And now he asks the right question, but it's a process. Yeah. Well, it's an exciting time of uh, dramatic change. I think that this is, I don't know if it's the most exciting time, but this is probably one of the really big stories in the world today, longevity and our, our ability to impact human health. I think the tools are really evolving quickly. I appreciate so much, Dr. Nirbar Zalai, to speak with us for a little while and share some of your wisdom and the work that, that you're doing. Thanks very much and good luck. It was fun for me. Mm -hmm.